The Lord be with you. Let us pray. O God, you have prepared for those who love you such good things as surpass our understanding. Pour into our hearts such love towards you that we, loving you in all things and above all things, may obtain your promises which exceed all that we can desire. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Okay. So this is... uh, you're coming for the first time. So just a bit about catechesis. Uh, catechesis comes from the Greek word katecheo, which means instruction. Um, the, the better the better uh, translation of it would be something like sounding down. It is actually similar in origin to the word that we use, echo. Um, the sounding of, uh, uh, it would be something like sounding a cave, right? How do you sound a cave? You speak into it, and the empty cave revert, you know, resounds back. And that's really the idea uh, behind the word, is that it, um, catechesis is about speaking into uh, human emptiness, and because we're made in the image of God and made to resound with the praise of God, uh, that those praises come back, right? They, they, they bounce back. Um, and so catechesis traditionally has had uh, what you might call three pillars of catechesis, and those are the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, and the Ten Commandments. Um, you'll note that... Uh, that uh, if you ever come to a baptism at Christ Church, a little kids being baptized, you know, the parents are told they must learn as soon as they're able uh, the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, and the Ten Commandments. Um, and then they can be confirmed, right? That's the, that's the idea. Um, and so this has been a very traditional thing. Um, uh, many of these things were considered to be part of the, uh, of the traducio. Uh, they were handed to, and this means literally handed to, the catechumen. Uh, so the, uh, the Apostles' Creed is handed over to the catechumen uh, so that they can hand it back right before they're baptized. Um, they're taught to memorize it. Um, and uh, so this has gone on for a long time uh, and uh, only lately has been dropped. It's one of the great problems in the, in the church today is that uh, people have given up this, uh, this uh, emphasis on catechesis and, uh, and have tried to replace it with other things. And other things are good, right? Like Bible studies are great right? Uh, all kinds of things are good. I don't mean to denigrate any of that. Um, it's simply to say that, uh, that without catechesis, these things are actually not as helpful, not as full. Um, you, you have to have this basic instruction in, in Christian teaching. Um, for many people at Christ Church, they've, they've received a pretty hearty dose of instruction through the years, uh, and it's just a way to learn what Anglicans teach, um, although I hope it's more than that. Uh, at the same time, there are many people who've come to me through the years and said, I've grown up in church, and I've spent all my life in church, and I've never been taught the basics, ever, in a, in a coherent, consistent, uh, planned-out way. And so this provides you with that opportunity. Catechisms, just to give you all the language, catechisms are, are a, a Reformation uh, a phenomenon. Uh, in order to, uh, the Reformers uh, believed that in order to, wrong, to right the wrongs, of, um, of uh, certain types of teaching, that they would write these catechisms, which would instruct people in the right way. And then, of course, Roman Catholics responded with their own catechisms. <laughs> and so now everyone's got catechisms, and that's just kind of one of the things that's happened. Uh, this catechism is new as of uh, the first draft was produced in 2013, and uh, it's now uh, in its kind of final form, uh, and you can buy it online, and you can buy it from us, and it's 20 bucks if you want a copy. Um, but this is, the, this is the text for the instruction, and this catechism is unique uh, because many catechisms back in Anglicanism 
uh, were for children, and they were meant to instruct children in the very basics. Um, and they were always contained in the, in the prayer book. This is a separate document uh, because the dearth of catechesis has meant that we must do more instruction, not less, more instruction. So here you go. Um, in this part of the catechism, we've just dealt with the Apostles' Creed all the way through, and now we're going to turn, now we turn at the end of the Apostles' Creed to this question of sacraments. Um, and we've addressed so far uh, the sacraments of baptism and the Eucharist, uh, and so if you want to sit down with me about those things, uh, happy to do that. And then we've also spoken of confirmation and ordination. Uh, I would note to you that the best way to memorize the seven sacraments, which, you know, I'll just be, I, I say there's seven sacraments now. Two are generally necessary for salvation. The other five are sacraments, but they're not uh, generally necessary for salvation uh, and uh, what are definitely given in Scripture. Um, let me just say that the best way to, to memorize the sacraments is to say first, it's the first sacrament that you, that you receive after the ba baptism. So, so baptism and the Eucharist are those two sacraments given by Christ as ne generally necessary for salvation. And then confirmation is the last of what we might call the, the initiatory sacraments. And they're called initiatory sacraments because everyone in the ancient church received them on their entrance into the church, usually on the same night. They would be baptized, anointed with oil from head to toe, and given communion for the first time. So wonderful, you know, we don't do that quite so much anymore, but uh, I'm sure that if someone asked, I would probably find a way to anoint them from head to toe. Um, then we speak of two sacraments that concern vocation, and those are ordination and marriage. So we spent last week talking about ordination and confirmation. Uh, and then there are two sacraments that are associated with healing, both the healing of sin and the healing of infirmities in the body, uh, especially, uh, and, and so that's just a way to think about the delineation between the two. Um, I, I must tell you this, that as we, as I kind of prep you for this, that I don't know if we'll get to these, but, um, you know, it's, it's a real problem today that we think about bodily illness as just bodily and not as a spiritual problem as well. Um, and in fact, there's great evidence among doctors that uh, proves, essentially, I think it proves that um, in any sickness, there's a spiritual crisis as well that goes along with it because you're trying to make sense of this, right? So if you've ever known this, you know, people who have cancer um, and, they, and they really go through it well, um, what, what do they tend to do? They tend to see it not just as a physical malady that they can be, that can be addressed. They see it as a whole body, spirit, soul kind of thing. Because all the while they're preparing to be healed, they're also preparing to die, right? And so there's this ongoing thing that has to be addressed. And the same is true of mental illness, right? Like, um, you know, as, as one who struggles with mental illness, um, you know, I've learned this, that it's not just a physical condition, it's a spiritual condition as well. It's an emotional condition. And, and I have to deal with all of them together. Um, and the church offers us these sacraments as a way to say, uh, even as we say, doctors are good, medicine is good, prescription drugs are good, right? Uh, you also have to deal with the bodily ailments, right? And that's, that's also tied to, in a very explicit way, sin. Now, that doesn't mean, like, Grandma Maud had cancer because she sinned. Like, that's not what I mean to say. What I mean to say is that the connection between sin and death is explicit in Scripture, um, especially uh, uh, Romans chapter 6. And uh, so you can, you can do that and say that without, without hesitation. Um, however, having said that, I also encourage, you know, if, if someone is facing uh, 
deep um, uh, you know, physical ailments, um, I almost always say, let's not only anoint you with oil, but let's also see about confession. Um, because it can, it can often be the case that um, spiritual sickness such as sin wrecks in you um, can often display itself physiologically. Um, and so this is a really, a really important thing. I remember, and I'll, I'm really giving away everything, but uh, I had a bishop once that uh, was a really wonderful, holy man, and he uh, spoke of going to a hospital one time, and there was this woman who was inexplicably sick. No one could say why she was sick. They, they could not explain it, but she was on death's door, and she was young. She was 37 or something like that. And nobody could explain why she was sick. No one could explain why she was dying. And uh, he went into the room and he felt God speaking to him, saying, you need to take her by the hand and say some things to her. <laughs> and so he took her by the hand and, and, and he said to her, just led by the Spirit, unless you confess, you will die in this bed. And she said, confess what? <laughs> she had gathered up the courage, confess what? And, and, and he said, you know. <laughs> and... Uh, and, and she you know, turned into a puddle of tears and she poured out her soul there on her hospital bed and was released like the next day, right? Uh, because because we, have to, we have to recognize this, that we are not just bodily creatures. We are, we are creatures that are a totality of body and soul and some might say spirit as well. But we have all of that working together, right? Um, and we should expect that they will affect the other, right? Um, and of course, you know, this is one of the things that, that people in recovery know. Right? If you ever talk to an alcoholic or, um, or someone going through Narcotics Anonymous, you know, they'll, they'll all tell you, hey, listen, it's not just a physical disease. It's a physical disease. It's an emotional disease. It's a spiritual disease. All those things work together, and unless you attack them all on all quarters, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna, you're gonna relapse. That's how it works. Right? Um, so, all set? Okay. Last week we were talking about ordination. Uh, the three orders in the church that uh, the Catechism speaks of are bishops, priests, and deacons. Um, Bishops are uh, uh, are the chief pastors in the church. Of course, who is the chief pastor? The chief shepherd, the great shepherd. Jesus is the great shepherd, right? Um, but he remember this, John chapter twenty one. What does he say to Peter? Feed my sheep. What is what does the shepherd do? Feeds sheep, leads sheep. Uh, and so they're understood to be shepherds. And this word is actually used, you know, the word pastor is used in, uh, in the New Testament, um, not in so much reference to an order, but in reference to what the ministry is, right? The ministry is that of shepherding, guiding, guarding the flock, uh, driving away all error, right? So, um, you know, if you've ever seen a, a, a real shepherd, right? Has anyone ever been to a like, European country and watched shepherds work? Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? And they have their dogs with them, you know, and the and the dogs are like the most beautiful dogs. And uh, I remember watching sheep dogs in Spain, and man, if a sheep got out of order, those that dog would take off and would nip at the heels of that sheep to get them back in the back in the flock. Um, of course, the shepherds, you know, they carry those big staffs, and the reason they carry the staff is twofold: one is to gather up the sheep, the other is to drive away all that would attack. Um, those that would steal, um, and this is this is bound up in the ministry of bishops is that of defending uh, the order and discipline and faith of the church. Um, so when our bishop shows up with his shepherd's crook, his crozier, as it's called, 
Um, that's that's what it's supposed to remind you of, is that is those two things that a bishop does. They gather up the sheep, and they also, um, which by the way, the church, the very nature of the church, the word ecclesia in Greek means the gathered people. Right? Um, so to gather the church is actually in the prerogative of bishops. That's part of the apostolic ministry. Um, it's also part of their ministry to drive away all error um, and, and to enforce discipline. Um, so, um, and that's particularly relevant to me, right? <laughs> because uh, people have often asked at Christ Church, like, well, what happens? Let's just say, what happens if, like, Father Nelson goes off the rails and goes crazy? I mean, I'm already crazy, but you know, goes off the rails, starts preaching things that are false and all of that. Well, you know, it's actually pretty simple. Um, you, you call the bishop immediately and you know, talk to the wardens and the wardens will call the bishop and, and say, you know, this is what he said this morning. And you, can, you can look on the podcast to see it and on the, in the live stream. You know? and, uh, and the bishop would call me and say, listen, you're going to retract every word of it and <laughs> or I'm going to have your head, right? And that's pretty much how it works. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, Bishop Iker formally sent this letter to a priest that all of us refer to as the howler, you know, um, in, uh, in Harry Potter terms, um, because it, it sounded like that. And he was like, you will recant every word! <laughs> like, it was just like, and he, and he had to read the retraction the following Sunday in the church. Well, because we take this very seriously, right? Um, to scandalize the church through false teaching is a major problem. Um, and in fact, actually in the ACNA this week, we've been seeing some of this, right? Um, people being brought into discipline for teaching things that are contrary to what the bishops hold and teach. Um, and if you want to know more about it, I'll tell you about it. But, but it's basically just to say that that, that teaching is really important and bishops hold that. Um, if you want to think about priesthood, and the, and the, and, and the, I mean, the word presbyteros in the Greek is what we translate uh, as priest. It does become priest ultimately in the language. But it means elder, um, and of course, when I was ordained, I was twenty. I was twenty-five. I wasn't exactly an elder, uh, but but this this word actually is has has more to do with the kind of forms of authority uh, that are that are given. Um, and uh, you'll note this in the, New, in the New Testament. You know, Paul goes around and appoints elders in every place. Um, he he sees this as the opportunity to leave the church in good hands, um, and they've been trained and they've been formed and all of that. Um, uh, priests are given the authority to uh, uh, not only offer absolution and blessing, but also to celebrate the Eucharist. In the ancient church, uh, priests didn't celebrate the Eucharist. Bishops celebrated the Eucharist. Um, and it's a really interesting thing. Um, bishops uh, believed that it was it fell to the bishops to uh, to maintain the, the kerygma, or the message of, of the gospel. And so because this is actually contained in the Eucharistic rite, and they were all back in the early days, uh, extemporaneous uh, kind of uh, meanderings through scripture. Uh, they were like extemporaneous proclamations of the gospel. Um, only the bishop could do it because the bishop was the bishop alone had the authority to authoritatively state such things. Um, and when it became clear that you know we have all these little parish churches and the bishop can't visit every parish church, he has to appoint priests. And one of the things that came with that was the development of Eucharistic rites. Um, so I'm authorized to celebrate the Eucharist according to the authorized rites. Um, and even bishops today don't veer off the right. They, they stick to it because, because it's, it's, it's a common 
thing held in common. Um, so that's that's really what's down to the wire there. Um, and furthermore, deacons. You know, you see the emergence of deacons in Acts of the Apostles. The apostles, you'll remember, are tired of serving tables. Uh, they're also tired of conflicts over the daily distribution. There are certain people that aren't getting as much food as they think they're entitled to. And uh, the bishops are like, you know, the Lord didn't set us apart to serve tables. <laughs> and so what do they do? Well, they appoint faithful men, seven of them, uh, to serve as deacons in the church. And these are uh, given not only the authority to, uh, to participate in the daily distributions, which, by the way, in those, at that point, uh, there's no distinction between the, um, the kind of feasts that the church is holding, right? these, these communal gatherings of, over food and wine, and the Eucharist. It's all in one big thing, right? It's like they have these love feasts that include the Eucharist as part of it. So deacons have always served liturgically in that time. So they've always served in the, in the distribution of communion, um, while at the same time making sure that no one's left out of the distribution of food. And so uh, deacons have a particular ministry to, uh, the, to the outcasts, to the homeless, to the hungry, etc. Um, so there's that. Uh, and deacons are not just sort of like... Uh, like a governing board. That's not what we have. So someday we'll have a deacon here, and the deacon is to remind you constantly. This is, this is actually the ministry of deacons, to remind you constantly of the needs of the poor, the outcasts, widows, etc. Okay? So, good? All right. I think I've, I think I've brought you all to speed. Um, uh, these ordination rites are very ancient. They, uh, you'll see in Scripture that um, the apostles lay hands on those that they seek to ordain. Uh, it's through laying on the hands by the apostles that this uh, that these ministries are maintained. I would say as well that one of the things that we have to be clear about is that there's both the office and ministry, but there's also the sacramental character of ordination. So it means that um, I serve in the office of a priest, right? But I am a priest. So uh, unlike in other churches, uh, if I was ever to walk away from the ministry here at Christ Church, even if I was to walk away from the church entirely, I would remain a priest. I wouldn't have to be reordained at the end of my wanderings. Um, and in fact, I know this because I have a friend who's, who, who is a priest in the diocese who uh, was a terrible alcoholic when he was first, first ordained, and he wound up leaving the ministry and leaving the church, actually. And he was evangelized by motorcycle gangs uh, of, of roving motorcycle Christians, and they, uh, they got him sobered up, they got him in recovery, uh, and he... He was actually reinstated by the bishop, but he wasn't reordained. He was reinstated. Um, why? Because that that mark of ordination is not lost; it, it continues on. Um, and though you might leave the office for a time, you can't leave the ministry <laughs> so easily. And I, I really just put this in, in the way that uh, you know, one of the one of the things that you have to struggle with in, in thinking about ordination is you know, uh, should I do this? Because you often think like, hey, I'm a terrible sinner, and do I presume to do this? Uh, and, and the answer is honestly like, I guess I do, right? Um, it's almost like it's almost like I don't know what else I'm going to do, right? Um, and almost the, the answer we need to ask is there any is there any reason you shouldn't do that? Um, and and probably the answer should be yes more more often than not. But I would say this strongly. Part of the thing that you recognize is that it's something you submit to, knowing your weakness, knowing your uh, your frailty, and then you're stuck. And I was remarking to my wife a few nights ago how grateful I am to have been stuck in this ministry. Um, how grateful I am to, to not be able to let go of it. So that's, that's just another thing altogether. 
Um, but I, I, I say all of this because uh, one of the things that happens at Christ Church a lot is that, uh, that there's some discernment about the question of ordination. Should, you know, should I offer myself ordination? And, and this is a this is a this is a church-wide kind of discernment process, and uh, some have entered into it. Um, but but it is about seeking the will of God for your life. It's about um, and and it's also about seeking what kind of ministry um, uh, you're being called to. This is to be reminded also that. Um, Clericalism is a problem. Right? This idea that uh, that the only people in ministry are those who are ordained. Um, I just want to say, wrong, 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 garbage, garbage, rot. Right? <laughs> it's, it's wrong. Uh, and it's caused a lot of problems because people think, well, in order to do ministry, I've got to be ordained. It's like, no, you don't. In order to do ministry, I've got to go to seminary and do all those things. No, you don't. Like, <laughs> um, you, you have a ministry that's yours. Right? Um, don't think that, you know, I hate the word, I hate the phrase, hate it, hate it, hate it. I'm going into ministry. Like, as if it was something that you weren't doing before. Something that was optional. Um, it's not. Um, the ministry belongs to every Christian. It belongs to the church as a whole. And we have to be reminded of that. Um, it's one of the reasons that I think we need to say a lot more about how Christians can uh, seek out their ministry in their vocation as they have it. Right? Uh, so some of you are college professors, or you want to be college professors, or just academics, or you want, or you're, you're working in engineering, or whatever it might be. It's like, listen, there's room to understand that from the perspective of, I'm a Christian, this is my ministry. I think that's really important. Um, so, you good so far? All right. Um, at the same time, I would say anti-clericalism is also a problem, right? <laughs> so, there's both the problem of sort of exalting the ordained, to the point where it's like, well, in order to do ministry, I have to do this. So, and this creates all sorts of other problems. There's also the problem of saying, well, like, we really should be more flat organizational. And, and I think if you read the New Testament, there's no such thing as flat organizational structure. There's hierarchy from the start. Why? Because hierarchy is how you maintain order. Um, and order is really important in the church. Um, because uh, when things get out of order, what happens? Certain things get lost, don't they? Like you, you start to lose hold of certain teachings. You start to lose hold of certain things that are that are necessary to the uh, to the vitality of the church going forward. Um, and and part of the deal is if it's every if it's if it's everybody's responsibility, whose responsibility is it? No one's, right? So like, um, you know, I don't envy our bishop at all. Um, he has got a really tough role to play, really really tough. Um, but but the whole thing works because I'm under authority, and he's under authority, and you are. And that's that's that. The thing that I really want to leave you with in this one is, is just to say that um, you know faith and authority go together. At least in the New Testament, they go together. Right? Faith is not to sort of unmoor yourself from authority and say, "Oh, well, I'm I've decided of my own free will and my own accord that these things are true." Um, well, first off, no one does that, right? No one does that. Um, I, I love to read some of the like conversion stories of you know hardcore atheists who become Christians. Like, they almost never say, "I reason my way into believing." They almost always say, "I reason some, but my gut drove me." And that's where I was really driven. Um, and so, uh, you know, you look at the, the Roman centurion that meets Jesus and, and wants his daughter to be healed of a, of a disease. She's, she's actually dead at the point of death. Um, you know, what does he say? Um, Jesus kind of 
asks him, you know, uh, I can't re- I'm trying to remember what he's asking, but, but basically he asks him about, a, about you know, how, how he commands. He says, well, you know, I've got, I've got people under me, you know, and they serve. And they do what I, they do what I say. Right? <laughs> and, and what does Jesus marvel at? Not his authority, but his faith. Why? Because these two go together. Right? We, we believe that the church has authority to teach, and to teach us the right thing. Um, and of course, that's very confusing in the day when you know, churches are divided, and, and the church is divided, and we have all these different churches saying different things and contradictory things. But I will tell you, I mean, I think, I think there's actually more consensus than you might think, especially when you take this out of the context of American Christianity, and you start to think about global Christianity, and not just global Christianity, but, but Christianity going back through time, what we call Catholic. And that, that actually includes all those things, Catholic Christianity is actually quite coherent and quite cohesive. Um, and there are boundaries around what Christians have believed and believed uh, within the bounds, right? Uh, but that's got to be held. And, and a lot of that, um, you know, going back to the very ancient centuries, uh, has to do with this threefold order that keeps showing up over and over and over again. Um, so just something to be mindful of. Okay. Should we talk about marriage? Okay. We're going to talk about, you know, I've, I've got to, I've got to, I need you to hold me to something, to a hard stop, hard stop at uh, 10.35, okay? Um, because I will definitely go off and just, you know, rant. Um, and I've, I've told the, I've told the vestry, like, the executive team, like, I have to stop at 10.35 so that people can come in and they can pray quietly and silently. And so I'm asking you to help me with that, actually, like, at 10.35, please, you know, Silence everything. Take time to pray before. I've, I've given up long since on people staying quietly after the service and filing out quietly because I know that's not going to happen. Uh, uh, but we're trying to maintain some you know, collective peace before uh, services. So, are you ready? Let me just, let me just say uh, from the outset that uh, every age of the church has its little issue that comes up, not little issue, but a big issue, and, uh, and it's a big debate, and it's a big argument, and, uh, and it's really always an argument about the authority of Scripture, it's an argument about the authority of the church, it's an argument about, um, about the boundaries and where the boundaries lie, um, and, and the reason I kind of initiate this first is, is to say, you know, you might think of marriage and say, well, what's the big deal, and I'm going to tell you today, big deal. Right? There's a lot on the table when we're talking about this. Um, so I'll say that first. Okay? You all set? Okay. This is on page 61, question 146. What is Christian marriage? Christian marriage, or holy matrimony, is a lifelong covenant between one man and one woman, uniting them in self-giving love, joy, and faithfulness. It is ordained by God for the procreation and spiritual nurture of children, the sanctification of husband and wife, the mutual support of their common life, and the flourishing of family, church, and society. Husband and wife enter into this covenant by exchanging vows before God in the presence of witnesses. Okay. So, as in every sacrament, you have what? The outward and visible sign and the inward and spiritual grace. Okay. The outward and visible sign in marriage is yes, that's that's the right. That's what actually uh, you know, vows make the marriage, actually. Um, I remember attending my mother-in-law's uh, uh, wedding, and there were no vows exchanged. 
which is kind of awkward for me because I was like, eh, I don't think they're really married. But <laughs> it's always awkward to have that kind of thing going on. But I'll say this to you, vows are necessary. The exchange of vows actually constitute, and Todd, you'll appreciate this, what Thomas Aquinas says is consent. Consent makes a marriage. Man and woman consent to each other to live in this estate till they die. Um, and they continually consent to that. But they start their consent with the vow. That's really important. Um, and, uh, and in fact, a marriage that doesn't have consent is what? Invalid. So, you know, I know shotgun weddings have been popular in Texas. They're invalid. Um, you can't hold a gun to somebody's head and say, make the vows, right? Because they're doing it under duress and they don't really mean it. Um, you also can't make vows if you're not of age. You can't make vows, you know, all those kinds of things. So consent is actually at the heart of marriage. And I think we have to say more about that. It's not just kind of like, oh, I love you. And you're so wonderful. And you're going to make me whole. Like, please don't ever say that. Because um, it's just not true, right? Um, but we've lost this today, right? Because, because the idea that, that's prevalent today is this idea that, well, we're so in love, and we like beaches, and we'd like to get married on a beach, because that sounds like fun. And if it doesn't work out, we'll just say, like, ah, you know, big deal, right? Because we have this wonderful, you know, not so wonderful uh, legal invention called no-fault divorce, right? Prior to the 1950s, in every state in America, you had to prove, actually everywhere in the world, you had to actually prove that there was some kind of fault um, that, that could lead to a divorce. And uh, in the church, actually, in every church, and I'm just going to be really clear about this, in every church, there was the possibility of divorce, um, but to annul a marriage as to obtain a second marriage was very difficult. I'll say that. Very difficult. Um, and it's been very difficult. Um, and, and the reason is that this is considered to be really important because discipline surrounding marriage is really, really, really important. Um, and I'm going to say more about that. Okay, so you've got, you've got the outward invisible sign is vows, right? But it's also, and you have to say this, husband and wife. Right? They are a visible sign that endures of something which is invisible, and Paul says what this is in Ephesians chapter 5, which is what? Yeah, Christ and the church. So every man and woman married are a visible sign of Christ and the church. The way that they live together, the way that they consent to one another, the way they become one flesh, all of these things speak to the, the character of the church. Which is actually to say that in man and woman, in the flesh, you have a sign of the gospel. Really key. Like we, we draw all these lines and they're important for helping us think about things, but really the church is the gospel. The church is Christ. Right? You can say all that really strongly. And marriage actually points us in that direction. So marriage is a really important sign. It's really important. Um, uh, it teaches us something very strong and very, very key. All right, so let's break this down a little bit. Christian marriage okay, or holy matrimony. Okay. Holy matrimony is what's called in the, in the rite. Um, and the reason for this is this. It's, it's an old-fashioned way of putting it, but holy matrimony is, um, is basically a reference to a woman becoming a mother. Have you ever noticed that in a marriage, in a wedding, the bride is the center of attention. Yeah, did you notice this? Like the groom wears the same tuxedo as his buddies, but not the bride. She wears a white dress, and and uh, no one else should wear. A, by the way, if you, you grew up not knowing this, don't wear a white dress to a wedding. Bad form, right? 
really bad for them. Um, you know, that's why you got to pick something else, like anything but white. You can have whatever color you want, just as long as it's not white. Um, well, why? Why is this going on here? Why is all, why are all eyes on the bride? Why is it that you sit for the for everyone else getting in place, and then when the bride, when the doors are open, everyone stands? Why? Because she's the center of attention. Okay? In fact, we've lost this because we've sort of built this idea of equality in marriage, and, and equality in marriage is uh, a nice idea, I guess, but it's also garbage. You know, it's it's there isn't equality in marriage. Actually, the woman is the reason for marriage. This is really important. Right? Um, culturally, at least, human beings, um, women are the gatekeepers with regard to marriage. That's why they're proposed to. Now, I realize this may sound very sexist and outdated. However, it is our entire human history playing out that has only been altered in the last like, you know, 20, 30 years, 40 years. Um, but, but I want you to hear this. Right? Women have been the gatekeepers traditionally of access to men. Um, and, and they decide. Um, actually, uh, among Jews, there was this idea, and it still persists to this day, there's this idea that in marriage, um, the woman and the woman alone gets to decide how the sexual relationship is going to go forward. And it's for her, not for him. He is to serve. Um, now, how's that for feminism? Right, like, <laughs> that's that's pretty awesome. Well, why does it why does it ha why should it be that way? I mean, according to them, um, because it's bound up in this idea of matrimony. In marriage, the woman becomes a mother. That's what it means. She becomes a mother. Um, so that's interesting, isn't it? <laughs> like, like she becomes something that she was not before. She becomes a mother. Um, and I would even say this too. Uh, you know. We've lost this idea that marriage, the first good of marriage, according to the prayer book and according to the church's tradition, is procreation. We've, we've lost it. We think, oh, well, is that really necessary? And, and the answer the church gives is, yes. Yes, it is. Um, I married an older couple once, and she was, she was, uh, she was funny about this. I, I sent her the proof for the marriage bulletin, and she said, are we really going to pray that I can have kids? And I said, yes. And she's like, now, Father, you know that I can't do that. I had a hysterectomy three years ago. And I said, yes, yes, I know that. So are we going to remove the prayer? No. <laughs> Why? Because, because even if a marriage can't be procreated physically, it can absolutely be fruitful spiritually. Um, marriage is an evangelical estate. It's supposed to be that. Um, so all of this is to say that, um, that um, in, in the marriage right, a woman becomes a mother, and that's really important. And that's why the emphasis is on pride. Um, in a lifelong, okay, so is that word clear enough? Lifelong, okay, lifelong, right? That means until one of you croaks, you're married, okay? Um, covenant, now what's a covenant? Lovely biblical word. You see lots of covenants in Scripture. The covenant with Noah, the covenant with Adam and Eve, even, the covenant with Moses, the covenant with, uh, with Abraham. And, and it's not entirely clear, you know, in many people what a covenant is, but, you know, uh, the great kind of uh, Roman Catholic scholar on covenant theology is Scott Hahn, and, and he says, and I love this definition, he says, a covenant is an exchange of persons. So here's what happens in a marriage. She becomes mine, and I become hers. 
full stop. Do you, do you notice that, that there's actually, um, in, in the old prayer book language, there's this language of, I, it sounds really weird, but, hitherto I plight thee my truth, which is actually a reference to the trust, as a, as a trust instrument. I give you my body and my debt and my possessions, etc., 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 to be held in trust. That's why trust in marriage is really important. Um, okay, got it. So there's this chain of persons. They, the two become one flesh. Is, is Jesus um, between one man and one woman, is that clear? Good, good. One, <laughs> only one. Right? Polygamy is out. Um, now it's interesting to note that you know a lot of people say, well, polygamy certain wasn't, certainly wasn't out in the Old Testament. But what is it that Jesus says? He says, in the beginning it was not so. Because for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, singular. And the two shall become one flesh. Two shall become one flesh. Right? So, um, actually, there's there's considerable historical evidence that uh, that Jews at the time had rejected polygamy, and they'd embraced monogamy after the Greeks and the Romans, uh, because they saw that it clearly reflected the biblical picture. Um, now, of course, for Christians, there's an even greater reason for embracing monogamy, which is which is which should be rather apparent if you just kind of open your mind to it, which is not only that. It, Less conflict, but something greater, which is that uh, there is one church and one Lord, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Right? These these, these are uh, abundantly clear. Um, also in Scripture, you should note that uh, polygamy doesn't go well for the kings that practice it. When you think about Solomon. Okay, I took Hebrew once, and we translated like four verses of First Kings eleven, and I remember them solidly. The King Solomon loved many women from among the foreign nations. Right. go on to speak about how, uh, including the daughter of Pharaoh, who, his heart was led astray from the Lord by these foreign wives. Now, it's not to say foreign wives are evil, but it's just to say they led his heart astray. Right. Polygamy constitutes a kind of, um, a kind of, uh, um, departure uh, from God's original intent. Okay. Uniting them. Okay, so the two become one, they united um, in three things. Self-giving love, which is great. That's really important. Right? Um, the love that husband and wife ought to have for each other is not a self-gratifying love. That's lust. Most of the when you seek to gratify yourself, that's called lust. And you always turn to unnatural means to do so. Right? That's just really important. Um, and, you know, I, w- I would say this too. Our society has a real lust problem. We have a real lust problem. The church has a real life problem. Why? Because we are seeking to gratify ourselves rather than engage in the self-giving love. When self-gratification becomes the end of marriage, as soon as you're no longer gratified, what do you do? You say, yeah, well, we're going to hang it up. But if self-giving love is your aim, you can endure a lot, can't you? Because you say, yeah, well, that's different. Um, joy, does it say happiness? And it says joy. You know the difference. Uh, joy endures, um, and faithfulness. And this means that the husband is to be faithful to his wife as long as as long as she's alive, and she's to be faithful to him as long as he's alive, um, and as long as she's alive. Okay, but the, the the purpose here is to have this covenant faithfulness displayed from beginning to end, um, and uh, so that's important. Um, all right, it's ordained by God. This is really important. Is is marriage a human institution? 
It's a divine institution. God gives it. Um, for what? Two things. The procreation and spiritual nurture of children. When God says to Adam and Eve in the garden, go forth, be fruitful, and multiply, he's actually using two different words. One refers to their physical procreation, and the other refers to the spiritual nurture which results in what we call fruitfulness. Um, so there's fruitfulness and multiplication. Right? Um, I'm probably butchering all of it, but the idea is they're separate, they're separate activities. They go together, but they're separate. Um, different things. Right? Now, this is important. Very important. Because this question of procreation has been actually called out in the open by so-called gay marriage. Christians should ask the question, how can it be procreated? And we don't. Because we actually, most of the time in, in America, we just sort of assume, like, oh, well, the procreation's optional because we have technology for that, right? We didn't always. Um, and so there's this question of, like, you know, and I actually think this is a really valid question to ask, is if you've already accepted that certain sexual relationships will not be procreated, what's to stand in the way? Um, so, so there's that. Okay? And listen, I make no secret about it. My wife and I do not practice contraception of any kind because of this. Do I hold that as a law for all? No. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm Anglican for a reason. Okay. That's not one of the reasons, but it's it's something that I'm very passionate about because I think there's a contradiction inherent in this. So does Ron Williams, by the way. Um, but this is really key. I mean, you have to you have to kind of wrestle with it and say like, if marriage, if procreation in marriage is optional, then what does that say about the nature of the sexual relationship? What's its purpose? What's the end of it? Okay. We good so far? Maybe not. Maybe you're mad. It's okay. All right. Um, the sanctification of husband and wife. So the second good, and these, these goods are sort of jumbled. I mean, they're not the traditional ones, but, but we use this language just to sort of make it abundantly clear. Husband and wife are sanctified through marriage. Part of it is that they give each other a lot of hell. <laughs> Let's just say that. Right? I mean, listen, if, if I've got a young couple in front of me, like, we're going to be so happy together. My job is to dash that hope. <laughs> okay? My job is to be like, you won't always be. There will be times when it's going to be real hard. And I have to say to that young man, I have to be like, well, um, so why are you getting married instead of joining the Marines? Because the Marines is easier. Right? Like, I have to ask him that question. I have to say, like, you know, I have to ask her. So, like, what if... 30 years down the line, you've grown up and he's still 22 or 23. What are you going to do with that? Here's another question. Because this naturally happens. Like, what are you going to do when you're both 50 and she doesn't look like she used to? This is what you're, this is what you're in for, guys. Like, this, is what it, this is what it's about. This lifelong faithfulness. Because let's just be honest about it. I mean, there's a there's a wonderful sociologist down at UT that uh, Bud Sushetsky who writes about this. You want to read his books? They're fantastic, right? They're brutally honest, and really well researched. But he basically says, listen, listen, Mike. women are the gatekeepers for marriage and sex. That's the way it is. That's the way it should be. That's the way it always has been. Um, and they have to be because the the opportunity for disaster for them is so high. Because being a widow or being being a, a spurned woman is really hard, right? Historically, in most cultures, um, we've only softened that blow recently. I 
not really. Because look, if you're wealthy, divorce isn't going to hurt you that much. But if you're poor, divorce is going to kill you. Like you'd be better off getting cancer. Okay. So do you see what's going on here? Is that there has to be like a social stigma regarding infidelity. There has to be a social stigma regarding uh, uh, um, divorce. When you remove that, it makes it actually very easy to be bad. <laughs> like, very easy. And of course, according to Aristotle and Plato, that's a bad society. Okay. So I'm just kind of raising all of this with you. All right. Turn to Bostochewski. But, but here's the deal, right? Marriage actually doesn't contribute to our being bad. What does marriage do? It contributes to our sanctification, right? Why? Well, because it's really hard. It's really hard. I'll often joke with people, you know, and this is a joke. I mean this in all, I mean this totally to be funny. It's, you know, in the prayer book, the confession right comes after marriage and Thanksgiving for the birth of a child. And I, I tend to remark, like, there's a reason for that. Because if you want to commit real sin, you have to get married and have kids, right? No, I'm kidding. You can commit real sin before that. But five, I got five. Okay, good. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just, we're, this is going to take us a couple of weeks, so I'm just be honest about that. Um, but listen, like, that's not to say when you're single you can't commit sin. It's just to say, like, look, monks and nuns and celibates, they fast a lot to give themselves bodily suffering. People who are married don't have to go looking for it because they've got it right in the midst of, their, of the crucible that is their family. Okay? Like, and I think that's really, that's really actually a really important thing to just sort of hold is that Marriage makes you a man. Marriage makes you a woman. Like, that's really important. It's really key. And it's not to say you can't be a man or can't be a woman without being married. I'm not saying that. Please, don't mishear me. Um, but it is for the sanctification. Now, having said that, it is clear that some are called to lifelong celibacy and singlehood, and that's really wonderful and really good, but we have to say that you still have to aim for sanctification. It's just that the arena in which you go for sanctification is the life of the church and not the life of the family in that particular way. All right. The mutual support of their common life. What does that mean? It means that they're all responsible for the life they live together. And it means they might serve different roles within that, within that household or within that life. Um, but, listen, it doesn't work like this. It's not like, well, she does the dishes and I drink the beer. Like, that's not how it works, right? Listen, if you want to have a happy, healthy marriage, the dishes are everybody's responsibility, probably more often the man's, right? Um, if you want to have a happy marriage, you know, uh, you got to step up to the plate and do things. This is really important um, because that mutual support of that life together is really key. It's how it works. Um, and the flourishing of family, church, and society. So people often ask me, well, what are the stakes for the church in this whole ongoing debate about marriage? So the stakes are very high. Well, why? Well, I'll tell you the first reason is because the family's at stake. And as the family goes, so do the children. Right? Like, look, I realize that some people in this room might be the, might be the product of, of parents who got divorced, okay? Do you like that? You know, you have to sort of wake up and realize, like, I am the product of people who are completely incompatible. And that means I'm a divided person in a certain sense. And it's not to say you're bad. It's just to say, like, this is a problem. It's an ongoing issue, right? It's not going to go away all at once. Um, now there's grace and there's healing and all of that. Of course, I'm telling you this very strongly. Okay, but where the family goes, society goes. 
For the first time, just a couple years ago, the illegitimacy rate in America eclipsed 50%. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, so, and this has a major impact on society. Look, I mean, divorce is expensive. Single parenthood is expensive. Because it means you not have, you don't, it's not just one household, but two you have to keep up. Um, I, I, uh, there's some research that shows that divorce costs usually about $300,000. Just straight up. Like, just, look, anytime a married couple's thinking about divorce and I'm telling, and I'm talking to them in my office, I'm saying, just write a check for $300,000 now. <laughs> like, and just look at it for a little bit and say, can we afford this? Because once they sort of say, like, oh, we really need to try to make this work, like, okay, we're moving somewhere. But there's a major societal cost to this, huge. Um, and it leads, it actually leads to generational poverty. And like I said before, if you're wealthy and you're in the elite, you can handle this. If you're poor, you can't. And, and let me just say this, that permissiveness with regard to divorce among the elite in America, is a plague on the poor. It's an injustice that's been leveled. All right. And that's all wrapped up with a bunch of other things. Uh, the, the, the flourishing of the church depends on marriage. How? Well, just notice. I've, I've noticed this through the years. Some single people are really good about offering hospitality. Really good about it. And I want to laud that and praise that. However, married people have a ministry of hospitality that is like written into who they are. Um, how does that work? I can't say. But the, the Christian family provides a very safe realm for the offering of hospitality in one, in one very real way. Okay. And society. How are societies built up by marriage? Anyway, listen. There are some men who can, who can become good men, single. It takes a lot of sanctification and a lot of spiritual direction and a lot of those things. But, you know, listen, married men turn out to be good guys on the whole because they can't tolerate being a bad guy. It doesn't work. Right, Don, did you say that? Like, listen, if you, behind every good man, there's a really good woman. And, you know, Don and Judy are examples that I don't want to call attention to you, but that's the reality, right? Is that, you know, Don's a good guy, but... Judy's responsible for that in a lot of ways, you know? And so, but, but I just want to call attention to it. You know, Doug and Nancy, same thing, you two, same bit, right? Like, that's how it works. I'm not a great guy, but my wife is a saint. And, and she makes me holy, right? And I look at my wife and I say, I would not be who I am without her at all. Not even close, right? Um, and actually, let me just wrap this up. Husband and wife enter into this covenant by exchanging vows before God and in the presence of witnesses. So, what's required for a valid marriage? Listen, as lovely and romantic as the marriage scene is in Braveheart, it was invalid because they didn't have witnesses. You have to have witnesses. And the reason you have to have witnesses is because someone actually has to hear the vows be exchanged so that they can say it later on. Um, and actually, that's why our witnesses at Christ Church sign my book and they put their address and phone number in there. Why? So that when the couple has problems, I can call the witnesses and say, listen, I don't know about you, but I heard vows exchanged. Did you hear vows exchanged? Yes. Now I want you to call her and tell her. Best man. Call him and tell him what you remember on that day. The date's in my book. 
your name's in the book, Colin. Like, and, <laughs> and, and it's like this, stop being an idiot. You're being an idiot. Like, this, is, this, is, this is bad. Okay? Um, I just want to tell a joke. Okay? And Judy's going to be, you know, she's going to have to live with it. Um, there's, a great, there's a great story told about American presidents. You can put Barack Obama and you can put George W. Bush or whatever it is. I, I learned it with the George H.W. Bush, so you're going to have to deal with that. So George H.W. Bush and his wife, Barbara, are out in Midland in a limousine, a presidential limousine, the beast. And they're driving around, and they need to get gas. So the Secret Service agents, they pull over to the side of the road. And the gas station attendant hops out, recognizes the presidential limo. He's going to pump gas into the presidential limo. It's going to be his, like, shining achievement as a gas station attendant. He gets, out, he gets out there. He's pumping gas. And all of a sudden, Barbara jumps out of the car. She gives him a big hug, and she's chatting him up. And she gives him a kiss on the cheek and hops back in the car. And George is sitting there with a smile on his face. And he's like, but who's that? And she's like, well, that was my old boyfriend. And he says, what do you think of you pulling up here in the presidential limo? She says, George, if I'd have married him, he'd have been president. <laughs> <laughs> so just hear that, right? Like in discerning, in discerning marriage, this is, this is the question before young men in particular. It's, does she have the goods to make me holy? That's what you got to ask. And, and women, you have to ask this question. Can he do that? Can I accept him just as he is right now? Um, and, and will we sharpen each other? Because this is the end of the thing. And I'm going to well, continue on with marriage next week. But marriage is a calling. It's a, it's a real calling. You have to be committed to what God has called you into. The fact that you're gaga-eyed over each other matters very little, actually. Um, is it important? Yes. But, but it doesn't matter as much as this sense of mutual calling. Like, we're called into this relationship. Um, which is why it's so sad when people just walk away. Um, either thinking, like, hey, this isn't working out, or... Um, because, listen, there's help. There is help. And, um, and I'd also say this, too. God can be glorified in bad marriages. That's the truth. And we don't want to accept that because we think, well, then it'll be really hard. Well, sometimes it's a cross to bear. Um, and actually, man and woman represent a cross to bear to each other. So, there you have it. Okay, more next week.